you think about just the, the, the tech industry that we have and how everybody's after what tech gadget that can I get? What's gonna be the new amazing feature that's gonna come out? In fact, most of you, I guess, in this room would have a smartphone in your hands. And I'm an Apple uh, person, and, and maybe that means you and I can't be friends, but I hope we can find common bond in Christ. Uh, but as an Apple person, I have been uh, all about the iPhone. And I remember when the first iPhone came out, I didn't get one. I was, it was 2007 was the year the first one re was released. And, and I remember seeing the first one out in the wild. And the, and the person showing it to me was showing me, look, it's got a separate web browser on it. You can open it up and it's got email. You can do your email on it and it's got this calendar and you can text people on it and you don't have to hit the same button four times to get to a letter and then have to cycle back around when you mess it up. It was amazing to see. In fact, that first year, the iPhone sold, uh, it sold 1.39 million phones that first year, 2007. And we might think, well, that's a pretty good uh, market share there. Well, by the time 2019 rolled around, that's when it reached its peak. And in 2019, Apple sold 233.9 million phones. 233.9 million phones. That's, that's a lot of phones. In fact, they're estimated currently to have about 58% of the market share. So if we split the room, over half of you in the room would probably have an iPhone. What makes the iPhone so amazing though, and has led to over 2.4 or just about 2.4 billion iPhones sold from the time it was released in 2007 to today, is that it, it amazes us. That's part of it, right? You, you think about in your hand, you hold more technology than was used to launch the first space shuttle that went to the moon. And you think of the size of those computers and you think of the massive uh, space that those had to take up in, inside of the NASA headquarters there and you've got more technology in your hand than they had in that entire room. It is amazing. And the reason why we keep going back is because we love to be amazed. And, and that's why Apple and Samsung and all of these other companies still exist is because we have an insatiable hunger to be continually amazed. And the problem with your iPhone is that after a few weeks, you start to look at it just as another phone. And then you start following the, the social media accounts that are talking about the iPhone 15 and the iPhone 16. And the iPhone 17, and they're saying, well, it's going to have USB-C, and it's going to have faster speeds, and it's going to have faster downloads. And all of a sudden, you look at this iPhone that two weeks ago was the most amazing thing that you could ever own, and you just look at it, and you kind of think, meh, because we have this insatiable hunger to be amazed. I want to suggest to you this morning that God has provided the end to that insatiable hunger for us to be amazed in what we're going to study today the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them up to John 1.14. John 1.14, if you're new with us and you're going, oh man, this guy only preaches one verse at a time and he's going through the whole gospel of John, I don't know, I, this is not my norm. It's not my norm. But I hope to show you in John 1.14, there's just so much here that I don't know how we can do justice to the text without really diving deep into this one verse and all it contains. John 1.14 reads this way. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We open John's Gospel with an examination of this Word, the Logos, the self-expression of God, His greatest revelation that the world has ever known, and that Word is Jesus. 
And here we read in John 1.14 that that word became flesh. In Matthew chapter 1, I read part of it during our scripture reading time, you've got this birth account of Jesus where you hear about the angel visiting and you hear about the journey and you hear about all of these things. And then in Luke chapter 2, you get the same thing in chapter 1 of, of Luke's gospel and you hear about the shepherds and then eventually there's the wise men and some of you are, are super Christians and you put your wise men outside the manger scene because it took them a few years to get to the manger so you don't want to put them in the manger because they're... But that's the Christmas story that we know, right? That's the Christmas story that we often celebrate. Mark's gospel just begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it goes straight into it. Because Mark is all about rapid fire. Mark's about immediately, immediately, immediately. And he's just given us just kind of this quick shot action of what's going on in Jesus' life. Well, a lot of commentators will tell you that John doesn't have a Christmas story. Doesn't have a birth account. However, I hope to argue that John actually does have a birth account. John does have a Christmas story, and we just read it in John 1.14. And the word became flesh. Yeah, no wise men, and no donkeys, and no Joseph, and no Mary, and no angels, no shepherds. And yet, this is the Christmas story. This is God entering into humanity. And John's birth account is so different, and so abrupt, and so brief, that it affords us time to really be amazed. There's something about it. We're not caught up, caught up in all of the, the trappings of the Christmas story that we're so used to that can sometimes take the focus away from the fact that, okay, this baby that Mary was holding is God in the flesh. That's what John says. The word became flesh. carne. Those of you that have come and ventured out here from California, you have been searching for a carne asada anything, haven't you? Yeah, we don't do that here in Texas. Carne asada. Carne, uh, carne means flesh or meat. And so as you're enjoying your next carne asada burrito, just think that you're enjoying a grilled flesh burrito. That's what that means. Yeah, hopefully that'll push the appetites down a little bit and give me some time to preach before you get hungry for lunch. Carne means flesh. And it's a Greek word here. It's incarnation. It's in the flesh. The word became flesh. Well, what does that mean? Flesh. Maybe you're thinking flesh in a Pauline sense. See, Paul would often use this term for the concept of uh, the, the flesh being sinful humanity or the sin nature. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. Because we know that that's something that Jesus did not possess. That Jesus was the sinless one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, You made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus is the one who knew no sin. So Jesus was not becoming flesh in the sense of taking on a sin nature. Well, it can also mean just the physical body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. It's a reference to his physical body there. And there's part of that, as certainly Jesus took on a physical body, but it can also mean simply just a word for humanity. Humanity. And that's the way that I believe that John is, is using it here. And he's using that term flesh because he's contrasting the glories of heaven that Jesus had experienced from eternity past until the moment the Word became flesh. And he's contrasting the glories of his eternal abode with the Father and the Spirit with the baseness and frailty of humanity. And the Word became flesh. Have you ever had someone deliver life-changing news in an overly casual manner? I remember when my wife and I were married for a couple of years and we didn't have any kids yet, but 
we were thinking, okay, maybe it's time to, to start our, our family and expand our family. There was one night that I, she was getting back in bed and it woke me up and I, I rolled over and I said, is everything okay? And she said, yeah, I just took a pregnancy test and I'm pregnant, good night. <laughs> I sat bolt upright in bed and then she went to sleep. Excuse me, what? The brevity, the impact, just, it was powerful. And I did not sleep for the rest of the night. So sometimes brevity can be used to an enormous effect. And so I think just the fact that, that John is so brief in his presentation of the incarnation, the Christmas story, doesn't mean that it's any less powerful than what Matthew wrote or Luke wrote. The word became flesh. What does that mean, that he became flesh? Let's flesh that out a little bit. There's two errors that we have to avoid here. And one of these errors is not as common today, and that's the error of believing that, that Jesus just simply appeared to take on flesh. It's an ancient heresy known as docetism. It's taken from the Greek word dikeo, which means to appear or to seem a certain way. And so this teaching said, well, you know what? Jesus didn't take on literal flesh, but just simply appeared to have a human body. But he wasn't fully flesh the way that you and I think of our fleshly bodies. The Gnostic uh, heresy also embraced this view. Gnosticism being the view that that which is spirit is good and that which is matter or physical, uh, the, the physical universe is evil and, and, and bad. And so they looked at this idea that the word became flesh and they said, well, certainly God would not take on the baseness and the, the, the corruption of a physical body. So he must have just appeared to have become flesh. That's not what the text says. The other thing that we have to avoid is the flip side of that. The other pole of this error, which is to suggest that somehow in becoming flesh, that Jesus lessened his full deity. That in taking on flesh, that some of his, his godness, so to speak, was surrendered. His divinity was given up in such a way that he wasn't fully God in order to become fully man. That's a dangerous error that we have to avoid in our thinking as well. Instead, what we find with the word became flesh, I think is helped and, and explained for us a little bit in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul says this of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, this is the concept. What does that mean? Emptied himself, became flesh. Those two things are parallel concepts here. But Paul explains what that looked like. He emptied himself, he says, by, by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So how did God, how did Jesus empty himself? Well, he emptied himself by adding something to himself. And what he added to himself is full humanity. You can think about it this way. The fullness of his deity was veiled by the fullness of his humanity. Not lessened, not diminished, not surrendered, not given up, but veiled by his humanity. One theologian put it this way as we think about to become flesh. He said this, Jesus did not lose any of the properties of his essential deity. He didn't surrender anything that made him God. That was impossible. Rather, he laid aside the revelation or expression of them while he walked as man among men. He laid aside or veiled the expression of them 
while he walked as man among men, which is necessary. Because think of Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah is there in the throne room, and there's Jesus on the throne because Isaiah is seeing a, a, a member of the Godhead seated. Well, the only member of the Godhead with a corporal body, with a, a body, is Jesus. And so Isaiah is seeing a pre-incarnate Jesus there in Isaiah 6. And as he's describing this, he gets to the fringes of his robe, and then he's completely overwhelmed, and he falls on his face, and he says, Woe is me, I am undone. Why? Because he's in the fullness of the glory. He couldn't stand to be in the fullness of the glory of God. See, for God to accomplish his mission through Jesus, Jesus could not come in full glory, but had to veil his glory. And the way that Jesus veiled his fullness of his glory is to take on the fullness of flesh. He became flesh. Two natures, one person. One commentator said, The Logos became what he was not, that is flesh, without ceasing to be what he was which is God. He became what he was not, which is the flesh, without ceasing to be what he was, which is God. One person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. Think about what that means for a moment. God became flesh. It should beg the question, why? Right? Why? In what other religion do you find God coming after creation? In what other religion do you find God becoming man, the creator entering into the creation, in becoming the, the likeness of his creation? You find plenty of false religions promising that men can become gods, but nowhere else will you find the, the offer that God became man. We ask why? Well, John has already answered this for us. He came to bring life and light to all humanity. That all might believe through him. And that as John's purpose for writing the whole gospel, that believing they might have eternal life. See, the incarnation, what we're looking at this morning, John 1.14 is imperatively crucial to you and I having eternal life. And here we begin to come to terms with the cost incurred by God, by the Son, to make that life something that's accessible to you and me. Our first point this morning is this. Cultivate awe. Cultivate awe at the word become flesh. Wonder. Amazement. That the word would condescend and enter into that which he created in order to redeem us. To give us life. Not long ago, my family went to go see a Rough Riders game. And we've been to a, a handful this year, and, and we were sitting there, and, and before the game, out comes a guy in a Rough Riders jersey wearing number five, and it said Seeger on the back of his jersey. Well, if you guys know the Rangers, and maybe you don't, but if you know Major League Baseball, maybe you've heard the name Corey Seeger, okay? Corey Seeger is a professional baseball player. He's an elite professional baseball player. He is a, a, an amazing talent, and so it was odd for us to see Corey Seager in a Rough Riders jersey, a double-A baseball jersey, out there running around with these 19 and 20-year-old kids that are still trying to make it to the bigs. Here's a guy that had made it. He's at the top of his game. He's an excellent, amazing athlete. And here he was playing with these, these guys that are, are still trying to prove themselves. As out of place as that seemed, God in humanity? 
That's amazing. That's something that satisfies our hunger, to be amazed. Is God in humanity. Again, you will never find another gospel like this. You will find calls to become godlike, calls to obey, calls to conform, calls to sacrifice, calls to pursue in, in, in many other religions. But this idea that begins with the word became flesh, you will not find that anywhere else. It's one of the hallmarks of Christianity. John Calvin once said this, How great is the distance between the spiritual glory of the word of God and the stinking filth of our flesh. Calvin had a way to not offend people, didn't he? Yet, he said, the Son of God stooped so low that he took on himself that flesh which is subject to so many miseries. Again, his goal there is to create the sense of awe and wonder. One of our distinctives here at Comes Bible Church is that we seek to maintain a high view of God. We want to make sure that, that we respect him, that we hold him in high regard, that we speak highly of him. And quite honestly, that's one of the reasons why so many false teachings have emerged from this concept of the word becoming flesh. Because we're afraid of demeaning and degrading God by suggesting that he would take full humanity to himself. And yet, y'all, that's what the scriptures teach. Fully God, fully man, saving the sin nature. He did not possess a sin nature, and that's important for us to remember. But fully God, fully man. I wonder if we're amazed with that as much as we're amazed with the latest iPhone. I preach that to myself more than anyone else in the room. And that's why I put the point the way I did, that we need to cultivate this sense of awe. It's not going to come naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is the shiny, the gizmos, the gadgets, the sensational. Maybe you're one, uh, somebody that, that's big into the whole alien scene these days. And this is like your World Series recently, right? I mean, the UAPs that are being talked about out there and, you know, Bob Lazar's on Joe Rogan and, and everything else. And, and you're going, this is like your World Series. You're just excited. I, I've listened to a few things recently on it. And they're now saying those that, that don't believe in it, they're now the conspiracy theorists. So, well, consider me a conspiracy theorist then if that's the... The definition. It's far more easy to be amazed by those things, though, which means we have to work at this. So how does that, that happen? Well, when my wife and I first moved out here, one of the first things that we started to think about is where are the playgrounds in the area? Where are the good ones? There's like Instagram accounts that people are, their goal and their quest is to go out and find all the best in, the playgrounds and, and post it on Instagram. And, uh, and so we were looking around, and, and we found some of them, and we would take our kids, and we'd take our kids to one, and they'd play, and they'd be like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. We'll go back to that one. But we'd take another one, and that's a great one, but it's so far away, I don't know if we can do that. But we wanted to find a, a place for our kids to get outside and, and to play and to exercise and have fun. Y'all, we have playgrounds in our minds. And those playgrounds in our minds are where we spend our free thought life. And my question to you this morning is, how much... Do you play on the playground of deep thoughts about Jesus and God in the scriptures? How much do you let your mind play on the jungle gym of doctrine and theology? To think about things that are hard, admittedly hard. To stretch yourself to think, man, this is crazy. How do I comprehend God becoming man? This is amazing. Yes, it is. And we should be rightly amazed by it. Be amazed this morning at the incarnation. Feel the shock here of John's brevity. And the word became flesh. 
do a double take as you read that and say, wait, wait, what? The simplicity, the shortness, the brevity of it, it, it's meant to take us aback and give us time to pause and say, wow, God becoming flesh. Cultivate awe at the word become flesh. But the incarnation was not just a divine drive-by. It wasn't just a, a, a holy pit stop. It was, as he goes on to say, a, a dwelling with us. It was a dwelling with us. Go on in John 1.14. It says, in the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, this was an intentional, albeit temporal, act wherein God in the flesh took up residence amongst humanity. When he says, in the word dwelt among us, we should read that as the, the original audience there, the disciples and those to whom John was writing who were eyewitnesses of Jesus in the flesh. But he says the word dwelt among us. What does that word dwelt mean? Well, it comes from the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word that's used of pitching a tent, pitching a tent. If, so if you think back to the wilderness wanderings of Israel, that was a, a common event there. In fact, there was one tent that stood out above all others. It was known as the tent of meeting. It eventually became known as the tabernacle. This word dwelt was used in the Old Testament Greek translation in reference to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. What was the tent of meeting? Well, we read about it in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. Exodus 40, 34 and 35 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Tent of meeting, tabernacle. This was the place where the glory of the Lord came and took up residence with the people of Israel as they were journeying through the wilderness. And Moses would enter into the tent to commune with, to hear from God, and to serve as the mediator between Israel and God. And God would speak to Moses while in the tent of meeting, and Moses would come out from the tent of meeting where God's temporary residence had taken up place on earth. He would come out of the tent of meeting and come to Israel then and deliver the message to Israel that God had commissioned him to deliver. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. God tabernacled with Israel in the tent of meeting. Now John is saying, in the word, God became flesh and tabernacled with us. John's using this term, tabernacled, to further explain the significance of the incarnation, the significance of the word becoming flesh. One theologian said this, Moses met God and heard his word in the tent of meeting. Now people may meet God and hear him in the flesh of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is there, and now there's no more need for the tent of meeting. There's no more need for the temple. We have Jesus. In fact, if you think forward with me, in the new heavens and the new earth, guess what's not there? The temple's not there. Why is the temple not there? Because Jesus is there. Because God is there. Because God is residing with us there. God had now embodied the tabernacle through the incarnation. Do you feel the, the, the weight of that? A good weight of that? Of the unmerited pursuit of God to come after us? That there's no more human mediator? There is no Moses anymore. Because we have Jesus as the ultimate tabernacle. We don't need somebody else to go between us and God. Because God has come to us and delivered his message directly to us. 
in the person of Jesus. But it's more than that. This tabernacling was significant for our salvation. Because without it, none of us are saved. The Father understood fully our plight and our neediness, and He sent Jesus to take up residence among us that we might know Him and be saved by Him. Thankfulness seems like such a a woefully inadequate response, and yet it is appropriate that we at least begin there. Our second point this morning is this. Thank God for Jesus, God's greater tabernacle. Thank God for Jesus, God's greater tabernacle. That he came and took up residence with us. That he lived amongst those disciples and eyewitnesses for 30 some odd years in the flesh. Plot twists, right? Plot twists. It's what makes a a really good movie. And I'm married to someone who sees them coming a mile away. I don't know how she does it, but she does it. She'll lean over to me and she'll call the plot twist at the end of the movie. And then it happens. And I'm like, will you stop? Because then I'm thinking, oh, yeah, it's going to happen. And, and she gets it right. The Prestige. Any of you ever see the movie The Prestige? I don't know how many years it was, was released ago, but I think it's outside the spoiler alert window. If not, don't watch it. It's fine. It's not God's will because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil it for you. You ready? There were two brothers. Did, how many of you who saw the movie knew that there were two brothers while you were watching the movie? That there were twins. We have twins and I didn't know there were twins. But you see something like that or The Sixth Sense, right? The greatest plot twist ever. I see dead people, right? And you find out the husband's been dead the whole time. Okay, the incarnation. This is the greatest plot twist there ever has been. That God came in the flesh so that we could be with him. Nobody would have seen this coming. Nobody would have written it this way. And it was necessary, though. It had to be this way. It it was necessary that he not just come and kind of touch down and go straight to the cross and then go to heaven. He had to come and dwell with us. He had to come and live with us. Because without his earthly life, there is no righteousness for him to exchange with our sinfulness. In Romans chapter 5, Paul makes it very clear that we have a massive problem. That in Adam, all sinned and death spread to all men because all sinned when Adam sinned. We refer to this as original sin, the sin nature. And so as a result, all of us are guilty. All of us are separated from God. We're not born neutral with the chance to be right with God if we're good enough. We're born hostile. We're born alienated. We're born in need of reconciliation. That's our massive problem. And yet, Romans 5 also makes it clear, not only did we have a massive problem, but God had a massive solution to our massive problem. And that's what we're reading about here in John 1.14. That's the incarnation, and more specifically, might I add, the dwelling of Christ among us. Because the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 5, verses 18 through 19. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's the first Adam. One trespass led to condemnation for, for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That one man's obedience culminated at the cross, but the cross was accepted because of the 30 some odd years prior to the cross that qualified him to die for us. 
The cross was acceptable in the sight of God the Father because he had merited his righteousness. Salvation is about merited righteousness, just not yours. It's his. See, for 30 some odd years, Jesus lived under the requirements of the law and did, as Paul says in Romans 8, what the law could not do. Weakened by the flesh, meaning the law could not justify us. The law could not make you and me right with God because of our flesh, because of our sinfulness. Jesus came and did what the law could not do because his flesh that he's embodied, that he's taken on, was not weakened by the same sin nature that you and I have. And so he spent 30 some odd years living a perfectly obedient life, living up to the law, fulfilling the law's demands so that when he went to the cross, he gave us that perfect righteousness and took our sinfulness on himself. That's why the dwelling is necessary. That's why the incarnation is not just a divine pit stop. That's why he came and lived. He came as a baby. He came and grew. He came and and lived obedient to the law because that was the requirement that we failed. We couldn't do it. And we didn't live up to the law. And look, the only way for us to be acceptable to God is perfect righteousness. Be holy for I am holy. And you say, I can't. And I say, welcome to the club. And that's why Jesus came. So that he would be perfectly holy. That he would live in perfect obedience to the Father's will. Not stepping outside the bounds of the law one single time. In order that when he went to the cross, he could take the righteousness merited while he dwelled on earth with us. And give it to you and me. If we will repent from our sins and trust him as our savior. And he takes our sin on him. That's why Jesus couldn't have just swooped in and died on the cross and gone back. Because the righteousness that you and I enjoy as Christians is not just the passive righteousness that Jesus has being God. God is holy. That's one of his attributes. But it's not just this passive attribute that he exchanged to us. It was an earned righteousness that he gives us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, when he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might receive the righteousness of God. That righteousness that we are receiving is the righteousness he earned by his perfect obedience to the Father's will while he dwelt on earth. And so we thank God for Jesus, God's greater tabernacle. Because if he doesn't dwell here, if he never pitches his tent among us, then we don't have a high priest who can sympathize with our needs. We don't have a savior who can be our substitute. The demands of the law haven't been met for us and we are still in our sins. If Jesus never dwells here, we know far less of the Father than we do now. But he's come and he's condescended to make him known. So let's be thankful. But what does that look like? How do we do that other than just saying, thanks, God? A few suggestions. Number one, say thanks, God. And not just once, right? I'm convicted myself. Just how flippantly sometimes I approach him, not thinking that the reason I'm able to pray is because of this. So let's be grateful people daily for the cross and for his tabernacling, for his dwelling with us. Second way we can show our gratitude is by striving to live holy lives, godly lives. Understanding that he came and died on the cross for our sins should instill in us a desire to say, man, I, I, I want to put off sin and put on more Christ-likeness. 
It's another way to express our gratitude. A third way to express our gratitude is through sharing the good news of his tabernacling here with other people. Sharing the gospel. Telling other people about Jesus. Telling other people that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's great news. Let me tell you why. Having those conversations and pointing other people towards him as their source of salvation. Another way is just to to contemplate this more. Building off that first point when we talked about the playgrounds of our minds. Allow the the thoughts of the, the, the dwelling of Jesus. That he lived a perfectly obedient life for you. Subjected himself to temptation for you. Subjected himself to the, the, the elements for you so that he might be your perfectly qualified substitute, so that he might have a righteousness to give you in exchange for your sin. Contemplate that. Dwell on that. I talked about our phones earlier. Let's redeem our phones. Can I suggest to you, you know how you've got the reminders apps or your alarms on your phone? Set some alarms on your phone throughout the day that just pop up and, and call you to, to be thankful for, for these things. Or set some reminders on your phones that pop up and say, hey, the word became flesh. Just so that you think about that, because I get it. It's easy to get busy during our day, and you're doing whatever your 9-to-5 job is, and you're, you're there, and then you come home, and you've got the kids, and you've got a wife, or you, you're coming home, and, and you've got the Cowboys game on, or whatever it might be. And we need those, those reminders to interrupt our day to say, oh, yeah, wait a minute. I want to pause and, and think about this. I want to give thanks. So let's be intentional with that. And thank God for Jesus, God's greater tabernacle. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But again, when the word became flesh, he didn't cease to be God. He didn't push pause on his deity so he could assume humanity. He was both 100% God and 100% man without blending or compromising either nature. As such, though it was veiled, the incarnation still revealed the glory of God. And that's where John goes in the rest of our verse. He says, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Never before in the history of humankind had the glory of God been perceived in a man. In Exodus 24, you've got the the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai and the cloud covering it for six days. It's a visible representation. In Exodus 19, the glory shows up and the mountain shakes under the glory of God. Exodus chapter 40, I read it earlier. You've got the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle such that Moses can't go in anymore because the glory of the Lord is there. And for him to enter in, he'd be consumed without the veiling. 1 Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple. Now we've moved out of the tabernacle. Now there's a physical building. 1 Kings chapter 8 says the glory of the Lord takes up residence there in the temple and the, the priest could not go in and minister before the altar anymore because the glory of the Lord was there. Or maybe you recall Exodus chapter 33 where Moses was so bold as to pray and ask God, God, can I see your glory? And you remember the story maybe that God took Moses and put him in the cleft of a rock and passed by him and declared his name but would not allow Moses to see the fullness of his glory because he said here, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And John writes, and we have seen his glory. What? How do we reconcile that? Well, we reconcile that through the incarnation. 
Like I said, the fullness of the glory of God was veiled in the fullness of the humanity of Jesus. And yet it wasn't imperceptible. It was still there. We could still see it. They could still be an eyewitness to the glory of God. Though veiled, they were still able to see it. Glory is the only Son from the Father, the unique one, revealing this glory. Moses would go in before the glory of God and he would have to come out and veil his face so that Israel could even be in the presence of Moses, the intermediary. Well, as Moses veiled his face, so the Son of God veiled his full glory with his full humanity. But John says, we've seen his glory. Well, what did that glory look like? Well, in John chapter 2, verse 11, right after the, the turning of water to wine, we read it here. This is the beginning of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, y'all, as Jesus went through and was turning water to wine and walking on water and feeding the 5,000 and healing the, the lame and casting out demons and raising Lazarus from the dead, all of those miracles that we see Jesus do were him pulling back the curtain a little bit to reveal more of his full glory. But the pinnacle of his glory came in the hour of his glory. John chapter 17, verse 1. In John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus prayed and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The, the cross and the empty tomb, that's the pinnacle of the glory of Christ on earth. That's what John, I think, mostly had in mind when he said, we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father. Maybe you're used to the old... Uh, translations, only begotten from the Father. It just means the unique Son of the Father. There was something about Jesus that stood out. Mark chapter 1, he's teaching and people stop and they go, there's something unique about his teaching. No one's ever taught us like this. Or in John chapter 2, the disciples see him turn water to wine and reveal some of his glory and they believe in him. Or in Mark chapter 4, one of the greatest stories that I love about Jesus is he's on the stormy sea and they wake him up and he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they, they, they go immediately calm. And these seasoned fishermen ask each other, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? The uniqueness, of the, the glory of the, the unique son of God. Or John 20, doubting Thomas. When he finally sees and understands, he says, my Lord and my God understands the fullness of the glory of God. This is what they were seeing. We've seen his glory. Glories of the only son from the father. And then he says this, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. John MacArthur points out that there's no two terms more closely connected with our salvation than grace and truth. And that's what his glory revealed to us. It wasn't a glory that was there to condemn it wasn't a glory that was there to cause us to say, okay, I need to try harder, do better, pull myself up by my bootstraps and, and, and go after this myself. It was a glory that revealed truth, which is necessary, and the grace which we need to believe that truth. We have seen his glory, glorious from the, the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. One thing I know to be true about eternity is that we won't be omniscient. I used to think that growing up. When I get to heaven, I'm going to know everything. Nope, wrong. That's what we call an unshared attribute, right? Only God is omniscient. Only God knows all things. So if you didn't like school, I hate to break it to you, but part of eternity is going to be learning. 
learning for the rest of, of eternity. And one of the, the main subjects for us is going to be the glory of God. That's one of the main things that you and I are going to be doing for all of eternity is trying to understand more and seek a deeper understanding of God's glory. Well, can I suggest to you that we can get a head start on that here and now? I, I, I love sports. Baseball is number one on my list. And my mind is filled with so many useless statistics and numbers. And listen, when I die and, and go to be with the Lord, those things will stay here. Those things won't matter. But the time that I've spent studying Jesus, the time that I've spent giving myself over to, to pursuing a greater understanding of and experience of the glory of God, that will come with me. And so our third and final point this morning is this. Seek a deeper experience of the glory of Christ. Seek a deeper experience of the glory of Christ. My wife and I watched a documentary from Netflix this past week on free diving. I, I, my mind is, is flabbergasted that anyone would willingly want to do this. The whole concept is you try to go as deep as you possibly can in the ocean until like it's, it, you're, you, they have safety, okay, they have safety divers that are there because they know that when you get close to the surface, you're not going to make it to the top, and they're there to grab you and lift you up to the top, so, and they're, they're like, they're giving CPR to everyone who breaks the surface of the water. They're just assuming you're not going to be breathing when you, and people are doing this willingly. They're like, how deep can I get? Okay, if you do that, great, but let me just say, can we all do that with Jesus? Can we all say, I mean, how deep can I go with an understanding of the glory of Christ. How much can I wrap my mind around? I mean, perhaps the, the, the thought of the, the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, the glory of Christ, it, it's, it's something that as a believer, you're there, you're going, yeah, I know I should be more passionate about that. And there's like a, maybe there's even a level of guilt because you're just saying, I just don't know, I just don't know that I, it moves the needle for me. Can I encourage you to, to, to take steps towards seeing that change? If you want that to change, and I pray that you do want that to change, if you want to be more hungry for a greater experience of the glory of Jesus, and right now you're just going, I, I just didn't move the needle for me. And, and maybe you're like me. When I was younger, I used to pray, God, give me a greater hunger for you when I would go to bed at night, and yet I wouldn't do anything to cultivate that hunger. Coffee's an acquired taste, isn't it? Most people, the first time they taste coffee, it's like the worst thing in the world. Why would you ever drink that? It's awful. We've been letting our kids take little sips of our coffee here and there, mostly because it's just funny to watch their reaction, right? But eventually you think of the benefits of coffee and you think, okay, I'm going to push through and I'm going to develop a taste for coffee. But you're not going to do that by not drinking coffee. You've got to drink coffee. Listen, if you all want a greater understanding of the glory of God in Christ, it's not going to come by you just going from Sunday to Sunday without doing anything other than just maybe occasionally flipping your Bible open just so you can check the box. If you want to develop a, a, an acquired taste for the glory of God in Christ, we've got to give ourselves over to a pursuit of that. Spending time in the Word, the, the daily Bible reading program, that's one of the reasons why we have that here. It's not just to check a box, but it's to give you fodder to, to think on and to chew on. The other thing that I would encourage you to do is, is pray with Moses. God, show me more of your glory. And I believe that God will answer that. He delights to answer that to give you a greater understanding, to give you a greater sense of who he is. So yes, let's pick up our Bibles and ask him to reveal more of that to us. Ask him to create more of a hunger for us in our hearts. And then let's press on and, and do it. 
You say, well, what about the days that I, don't, I wake up and I just don't feel like reading the Bible? Can I just suggest to you that's the time that you should do it more than, than anything else? And trust that God is, is going to use it. He's going to use it. He's going to show more of, you to, to, more of him to you. He's going to give you a greater understanding of who he is. Is this a, a final point about reading your Bible more? Yeah, it kind of is. But I'm not sorry. I mean, this is, this, we've been talking about in the beginning was the word. This is, this is the greatest. We don't have Jesus here right now, but we have this. And the more we study this, the more we will know of him. If you're out there going, oh, I, yeah, I want that. I, I don't know where to start. Start today. You're going, well, shouldn't I start to wait till the beginning of the year to start a daily Bible reading program? Nope. Nope. Jump in right now. There's nothing holier about Genesis than there is about the book of Proverbs, which we're about to start in our daily Bible reading program. There's nothing holier about Matthew than there is about, what book are we in? First Corinthians, thank you. First Corinthians in our daily Bible reading program. Jump in there. God's word is powerful, all of it is, and he will use it to transform you. He will use it to show you more of who he is. And the word became flesh. Just hope this morning that we leave a little bit more amazed with that than we are with the next iPhone. Right? There's a scene as, as I close here from the movie Gladiator. Going, I, I don't know. This pastor is talking about Gladiator. I, I just I don't know about this church. Preached one verse. Anyways, there's a scene from the movie Gladiator, which I'm not endorsing, but Maximus is there. And he's fought, and they've won. The, the, the slaves have won. The gladiators have won. And all of these Roman citizens are there, and they're, they're all in their pomp and circumstance, all up in the, the audience, and they've been watching. And there's the, the, the officials up there. And, and Maximus, I don't know if you remember the scene, if you've seen it, he takes his sword, and he takes it, and he just hucks his sword up into the, the audience. And it clangs off this silver pitcher, which falls to the ground, and a hush falls over the audience. And Maximus looks at the crowd, and he says, Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? You know, church, I wonder if John was here today and walked into our church as we're studying John's gospel, the gospel that he wrote, and we're reading about the incarnation. I wonder if he would not look at us and say, are you not amazed? Are you not amazed? Is this not why you are here? To be amazed with Jesus. Let me pray, and then we'll close in one more song. God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for the reality of it. Thank you for the simplicity of John's depiction of it, that we might read it and be taken aback and have a moment and have time to think about it a little bit more than perhaps we do when we're caught up in all the trappings of Christmas or caught up in the story of the, the wise men or the, the, the shepherds. Lord, it, it's great to just think about the, the simple act of the word becoming flesh and to scratch our heads and, and confess that the finite creation cannot understand the wisdom of the infinite creator that designed this plan. Lord, guard our minds from wrong thoughts about it, from thoughts that would either diminish the fullness of his God, like, of, his, of his deity, or diminish the, the, the fullness of his humanity. Help us, Lord, to do something that our minds are not fully capable even of doing, to understand that he was fully God and fully man. Lord, cultivate in us a, a gratitude, a thankfulness for the incarnation, a thankfulness for Jesus. Lord, reveal more of your glory to us as we learn more about Jesus, the one that came to reveal that glory full of grace and truth. We pray this in his name. Amen.